Joso. Uh, no. More about gel coat. When the force. Don't you call in the. More importantly. Welcome back to another TV Talkaholics. Hi, Matthew. Oh, just as he takes a drink. Girl drinks a root beer right before she goes on the air with me. It's got to (laughs) happen. Hi, Matthew. Hi, David. Are you ready to talk about some black comedy? Um, I'm not sure I would call it. Okay, yes. It is a comedy and it is uh, about black people. And it is a wonderful show called 227. Who better to talk about a hit African-American comedy than two very white, very gay people? I just, this is good. This is going to be good. Middle-aged, middle, especially middle-aged. How dare you? Okay, um, we'll, we'll just let that one lie there. Lie there. Uh, this is uh, a suggestion from a Tutti Fruity. It was James E. that suggested this episode. He brought my attention to the Charlotte Ray episode. And uh, when I was digging, I also found the Kim Fields episode. So we're going to be discussing two different episodes of 227, one with Charlotte, one with Kim, and I am so looking forward to this because approaching this immediately, I was like, I loved this show. This was one of my favorites. I watched it maybe a little less than, say, The Golden Girls and all that, because again, these were my college years, but I don't ever recall not enjoying this. What was your history with this show, Matthew, when you were in vitro and watching it? I loved 227. I loved Marla Gibbs. And I loved the fact that Elena Reed was on Sesame Street. So I recognized her. Mm-hmm. Sure. She uh, was Susan on Sesame Street. Gordon and Susan, I remember very well. And the great thing about this is taking, we're going to talk a little bit later about the idea of spinning off a side character into the central spotlight. We talked about how problematic that was with uh, Phyllis coming from the Mary Tyler Moore show to being on her own show. Uh, They really did successfully capitalize on the popularity of Marla Gibbs as the wisecracking maid on the Jeffersons and making her a more central, more grounded, but still funny main character and i i always thought this show one of its strengths was that it did have a strong uh central character that everything revolved around isn't it interesting though that this worked and the florence spinoff didn't Hmm. very weird i i maybe because they were trying to make her too florence too sassy and too wisecracking and, you know, well, we can we can address this right now. This is the show that put Jack A on the map. And she is not in the final season of 227 because they were like, well, spin that bitch off. Get her her own show. She is so popular. And the network passed on it. And they did bring her back for some guest spots in that final season. But they had already made sweeping changes to the show to account for her absence. And uh, watching this 
I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I think this is where she belongs. I'm not sure I could take an entire half hour of Sandra being the central figure. What are your thoughts? Well, I watched that episode is on um, YouTube. The episode of Jacquet mm-hmm. is on YouTube, which is oh. weird because it's called Jacquet, but she plays Sandra. Yeah. Well, like, you know, the Ted Knight show when he plays Ted Flenderson or whatever the fuck they've, eh, that's, that's not completely crazy. It's, eh, okay. Um, but I don't know. I just, I, I, she was always my favorite character on the show. So um, she mm. does show up every once in a while in season five though. Yeah. At least she wasn't completely abandoned. And um yeah, well, let's, uh, first of all, I already mentioned James E. Again, thank you so much, James, for suggesting this and bringing this to my attention because I'm looking forward to uh, this discussion of a show that I really enjoyed. Uh, let's talk some nuts and bolts, Matthew. All right. 227 ran from 1985 to 1990. That was five seasons, 106 episodes, perfect length for syndication. And it did see uh, a second life in syndication, maybe not quite as much as, you know, Golden Girls or whatever. But uh, yeah, it still has some lasting power. You say 227 and people remember this show. Uh, Marla Gibbs did do the Jeffersons previous to this. She was, of course, the draw. The show was developed for her uh, based on a play that she had done. In the late 70s, um, the play was also called 227 by Christine Houston about the lives of women in a predominantly black apartment building in 1950s Chicago. And in that, her husband was played by Hal Williams in that stage production. And, and I believe Regina King was in it, but in a different role, didn't play the daughter. Who would Regina King have played? I think there's like a, a character of a neighbor's kid or something. Oh, okay. Like, I think there's another, just like, a different... What, what was she, four? <laughs> I know, really. Well, in the late 70s, Regina King's my age, so she would have been pushing 10, you know, pushing the double digits, you know? But uh, just things of interest before I get into the uh, creative staff of it. It was supposed to be developed and premiered the following year because Marla Gibbs was committed to the Jeffersons. And I think it was supposed to be one more season of the Jeffersons. And then CBS quickly, surprisingly and unceremoniously canceled the Jeffersons out of the blue. And so this show got produced and premiered a year ahead of schedule, which is crazy. How many artistic projects in, in entertainment you hear about that get pushed back and delayed? But the fact that it was like, well, fuck, she's available. We get the team together. So, uh, yeah, good for good for her. Good for us that we got this show. It premiered on the same night that another show premiered on Saturday night on NBC. Guess which show? The Golden Girls. Correct. <laughs> yes. So it was the literally the inception of the powerhouse NBC lineup on Saturday nights, the uh, 1985-86 season, you will recall, is the first year that the Facts of Life was moved to Saturday. It was running mostly at 8.30 with Give Me a Break on at 8. So we had Give Me a Break, Facts of Life, Golden Girls 227. And then after Give Me a Break went off the air, uh, this show and Facts of Life occupied the first hour, and then it was Golden Girls and Amen. Uh, 
And then when Empty Nest premiered as the spinoff of The Golden Girls, that occupied the second thing. Anyway, it was the beginning of the uh, evolution and constant changing, you know, must-see Saturday, as it were. Oh, and speaking of that, you know, I always like to look and see what else is playing on the same night of the broadcast of the episodes that we're analyzing. Mm. Not going to do it. Oh. Nothing of note. It was all same old, same old business as usual. Uh, in particular, uh, the second one we're going to do, the Charlotte Ray episode, that was on Thanksgiving weekend. And yet there were no specials. There were no network premieres of movies or anything. So uh, we need not. Uh, go into that and spend any time on it. Right. 227 did very well in the ratings. In its five seasons, I'm going to now recite where it landed in all five seasons. Season one came in at number 20. Season two, number 14. Season three, 27. Season four, at 35. And then season five, it was number 60. Mm. Uh-huh. Yep. And I think what was going on that final season, that's where Empty Nest came in. And that's where this show was moved to 8 o'clock as opposed to 8.30 after Facts of Life. And uh, remember we talked about how The Golden Girls was such a powerful show in the ratings. The shows that preceded and came after it always did very well in the ratings, regardless of whatever they put there. And uh, 227 ended up in the eight o'clock hours. So that wasn't enough to carry it through. And of course, we're going to talk about significant changes were made, including yeah. the loss of Jack Hay. Mm. So it's no wonder people stopped watching. Yeah. But go figure a show on the same night in mostly the same ish time slot. When you get a show that finds a time slot that works, you leave it there and let it build its audience. This is a great example of that. Uh, and then don't fuck with it too much. The show was created by Michael G. Moy and Bill Boulware. Michael G. Moy is uh, an African-American writer-producer. He previously wrote for Different Strokes, Good Times, Silver Spoons, writer and producer for many episodes of The Jeffersons. He would go on to create and executive produce a little show called Married with Children, which ran for 11 years on Fox. So, uh, yeah. And Big. I was reading that he didn't like the way the show went and he does not take credit for it. Yes, he is credited as C.J. Banks. C.J. was the name of his college theater professor. He basically said, don't put my name on it. Put this other name, a pseudonym. Uh, because uh, unbeknownst to the public at large, Marla Gibbs was one of the executive producers also. It was an uncredited role that she played. So she did have some creative control over the show. And Marla Gibbs wanted it to be a more issues-driven show. She wanted it to be a little more heavy, hard-hitting, more like in the classic Norman Lear sense. And Mr. Moy credited, and, and Mr. Moy had wanted something a little lighter, a little more family sitcom. So it seems that his vision won out over hers, though I don't think it was necessarily him that carried it out. So, um, yeah, it is It is interesting. The other creator, Bill Boulware, I cannot find record of him. I cannot find photographs or any background information. I can't figure out if he is white or African-American. 
he previously had written for Benson, and he would go on to write and produce for Fresh Prince and the Parkers, which is the Monique show. Uh, I, based on all that, I'm thinking he probably is African-American, but I, I cannot find verification of that. And also as an uncredited executive producer, Norman Lear. Though this didn't ever feel quite like a Norman Lear show to me, did it to you? No. And uh, just last thing about the creative team, I noticed a familiar name in the end credits and I went, oh, wait a minute, that's a person from the Facts of Life. So I went back and just looked at all the people who are either writers or producers on the show. And yeah, some names that you might recognize that we've discussed on, on Let's Face the Facts. Fucking Asad Kalata. Asa no Asad Kalata, no. Uh, Larry Strauss, <laughs> that's Charlotte Ray's son. He apparently had a story. One story was his. I don't think he wrote the actual teleplay, but other names you've heard before, Michael Porius, Mark Tuttle, Irma Kalish, Austin Kalish, John Boney, and of course, Bob Meyer and Bob Young. Remember the Bobs? We've talked about them. Oh my God, the Bobs. Yep. And Marla Gibbs herself even has some writing credits. So she wrote some of the scripts. It's like, bitch, you go. You have creative control over your show. Yeah, Marla Gibbs is really good. It was one of those shows, and maybe I'm falsely remembering, David, but it was one of those shows that was so popular. Like, it, it got copycats, didn't it? Like, I mean, the women of Brewster Place, I feel like, came shortly after this. And it was like, oh, suddenly Hollywood found out that Black women watch television. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why. Like, but and that sounds like a very white privileged thing to say. But like, I feel like 227, more so than Good Times or even the Jeffersons kind of, I'm, I'm trying to think, was there a show that spoke to Black women of a certain age? Because gold, like you said, it aired the same time the Golden Girls aired. So there was no, and people were like, what? A show with four old white ladies? But at the <laughs> same time, nobody was like, what? A show with four old Black ladies? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it seems, because there are a lot of character I mean, Marla Gibbs is the B. Arthur of of two two seven. Oh, okay, sure, yeah. Sandra what, what, is the Blanche, and yeah, is the Blanche. And what's her pussy is the is the Sophia for God's sake, Pearl. So yeah. it's just interesting how like the fuck Hollywood, and then like like I said, like I feel like Bru the women of Brewster Place came along, and also this was the year Oprah. Um, Started her show in 84, 85, wasn't it? 86, I believe. So Oprah was still very new. Absolutely. Um, I so, think I think what's, uh, what is going on, you're not falsely remembering that the show was popular. And one of the reasons why the show was popular was unlike this other show that had premiered just the last, uh, I believe, one or two years prior, The Cosby Show. Um, no, it was only, it was Cosby Show was 84, right? So this is 85. So- yeah. With that, remember Cosby? Yeah, it's about a black family. The dad is a doctor. The mother is a lawyer. And they live right. in an upscale uh, uh, brownstone. Were they in D.C. also? Where did the Cosbys live? Were they in D.C.? I thought they were in New York. 
Are they? You're right. Totally. Of course, they're in New York. I fucking knew that. They're like, but they're like in like Brooklyn Heights or something, weren't they? They were in a a, a much nicer part. They they were not living next door to the the Good Times family in Harlem. That's for damn sure. But this was a show about a working class family, a working class couple, where the husband is a construction worker. Marla Gibbs is a housewife, so apparently he does well enough that I don't believe she ever works in this show, does she? He owns the construction business. Oh, okay. So that's why. But she is, you know, for uh, the, the show, the sort of iconic visual thing that comes to mind when you think of 227 is you think of the women sitting out on the stoop drinking their coffee. Right. Well, Pearl is uh, on her windowsill because Pearl is retired. And uh, Marla Gibbs is there because she's a homemaker. Her husband supports them. And Rose, the um, Elena Hall character, is there because she's the landlord. She owns the building. So this is this is her passive income, bitches. So they all, and, and you know, Sandra just, what? Sandra just fucking took money from men. She just let men yeah. support her, didn't she? I'm not sure what, it, the, I will say this whole rewatch kind of makes me, want to start on episode one and rewatch 227 because, and we'll talk about this later when we talk about the differences. In five years, this show changed a lot. Yes. Like we talk about the changes in facts of life from season nine to season, season two, but like, it's not even the same show yeah. that we saw the episode with Charlotte Ray. It's not even the same show that yeah. we saw with, with Kim Fields. Like the mm -hmm. characters, I was like, who are these people? Now I need to go back and find out what they did to get rid of Sandra. Because I love when characters leave shows. So I want to find out how they wrote her out. I want to find out um, the white kid and Travis, the sexy black boy Travis, <laughs> showed up. Because, you know, <laughs> all, the, all those black kids I went to school with named Travis. Uh, yeah, I think the real appeal of it was that it was middle class. I mean, the Cosby show, certainly they did hit upon plots and subjects that kind of transcended that. But this was a show really about working class. I mean, you you never saw Felicia Rashad sitting on the stoop out in front of their brownstone, drinking a cup of coffee with the neighbors and gossiping. Come on. No, but it makes me, again, question my white privilege because... The Cosby show, I feel like, was written for white people. Oh. Like, it it had problems that white people had, you know, like their son getting an earring and, and things like that. Whereas 227 was like, these are normal black people. Yeah. The, these aren't poor people like, like good times. They're not wondering where their next meal is coming from. Yeah. They're not the nouveau riche like the Jeffersons. Right. These are speaking. This spoke to a generation of people that I cannot believe was ignored for so long by Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's shortly after this that Roseanne comes along. And mm -hmm. the thing about Roseanne, that it was so insanely popular, not because it was a good show, not at first. We had gotten so far away from the... Leave it to Beaver. Yeah. Um, the well, I was going to say the reflective television, television that was reflecting uh, who we are, like like Archie Bunker, you know, the working class cab driver and, you know, his homemaker wife and his 
uh, hippie son-in-law living with them and stuff like that. We had gotten so far away from that when Dallas and Dynasty and everything, everything in TV became aspirational. Now yeah. you're watching JR in his fucking mansion. Yeah. And it, it was kind of this, you know, this cyclic thing where when it came back around, it was like, well, Roseanne is really popular as a stand-up comedian. So maybe let's take her act and put it on a on a TV and in a format like this and see what happens. And it exploded. And Roseanne and Tom and all that, when they would do the interviews, they always said, our show is about working class people. That is what is so unique. And it, it's, you know, everyone talks about the show being revolutionary. It's not revolutionary. It's kind of obvious. It's just, like you said, it's been ignored by Hollywood. It's those rich Jew producers who, oh, wow. Mm. Oh, my God. <clears throat> it's those it's those damn rich producers that, you know, had lost touch with the with the general public. Oh. So you want to talk about uh, the cast of this? We already talked a little bit about Marla Gibbs. So Guess how good. old she was when she started this show. OK, OK. I know she's like 95 now or something. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> um. God, she would have been, what is she, like 46 or something? 54. Oh, that's right. I did look that up. She's your age, David. Yes. Marley Gibbs is my age. And I'm much closer to Regina King's age in the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Yeah, we've already talked about Marley Gibbs, just her popularity in the Jeffersons and uh, the live in front of a studio audience that they did two years ago, I think, is where they did All in the Family and the Jeffersons. Marla fucking Gibbs played Florence <laughs> on the live show. And she was like you said, she was, I think, 88 or she was she was pushing 90 at the time. Insane. And she's still kicking and still fabulous. And Ken Reed still mentions f- very frequently on his show that all the early seasons of the Jeffersons, she kept a day job. She was like, mm, I'm not relying that this is this gravy train isn't going to end. So she kept a day job for a long time. And, and good for her, because I, I hope that show and this show kept her very well and continues to keep her very well. Hal Williams plays Lester Jenkins, her husband. Perfect. Just perfect. Great chemistry. It's great. And again, to quote our our great friend Ken Reed, he is the perfect husband who just wants to eat his dinner. <laughs> he comes home from work. I just want to eat my dinner, but no, Mary's got some shit going on in the neighborhood and has to get him involved and and tell him the whole story and spill the tea. And he's like, "Could I just?" <laughs> so the uh, the the put upon hapless husband. He is great, and their chemistry together is wonderful. And and right up until season five, they're getting some love scenes. There's that one scene in season five where she comes out to answer the door in a nightgown. You know they was fucking. Oh my god, David! I'm I'm just saying they they made no bones about the fact. I don't know what your search terms are on Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> so Hal Linden is wonderful, and Hal Linden. I love Elena Reed Hall so much. I do I too. I don't know why she's dead, but I just love her. Is she dead? Yes. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Uh, no, no, I believe you. <laughs> I was more concerned about her husband. I didn't realize she married Kevin Peter Hall. That's why Elena Reed became Elena Reed Hall. Kevin Peter Hall is an actor. He is seven foot two inches tall. Jesus, if she died happy. Yeah. <laughs> I should say he was seven foot two inches tall. So he is the actor who played the Predator in the Predator movies. He was Harry in Harry and the Hendersons. And he died in 1991 at the age of 35 from AIDS oh. because he got HIV from a transfusion. Oh, dear. Well, that's a fun show, everybody. Thanks for coming. Let's keep the hilarity going here. But anyhow, that's just, I was like, that's tragic. So they were only married for like three years. And uh, anyhow, may they they be reunited in the next life, because I didn't realize she had also passed. Um, We talked about Jack K. Harry. God, she's fucking brilliant holds the distinction of being the first African-American woman to win an Emmy for Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy. hmm For this role. And when someone asked her where did she come up with the interpretation of it in a, on a talk show, I believe, I heard her say uh, she was supposed to have a head cold or something. So they were like, Sandra, what's the matter with you? And she's just, her interpretation was, I'm sick. She put on this voice like this to, uh, to try and act like she was sick. And she realized it was really fun and started doing this. She and a middle-aged brilliant. gay white man, nothing funnier than him doing his impression of a black woman, first of all. Um, but I've done it before and I'll do it again. <laughs> okay, I will not do any more. There, it is Thank done. Thank you. I got it out of my system. Um, so there was some talk. What do you know about this, Matthew? I didn't get a lot of research done. Was there a rivalry between Jack K, uh, Jack K. Harry, who later dropped her last name and just became Jack K? Was there a rivalry between her and Marla Gibbs? I could not find anything that definitely said there was. I can't imagine <clears throat> that there was some ego. You know what I mean? I can't imagine that there wasn't a little bit of, oh, this is my show. And now I've got a Barney Fife in it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I can't imagine that there wasn't a little bit of, oh, here comes Marla, here comes Jacques to steal the scene and walk off again. You know, I don't know. But it's an Esterol Jimmy Walker situation all over again. And they both said that there wasn't, but I, I mean, who knows? Yeah, it is interesting that they did. There is that backdoor pilot called Jack Hay, and it didn't get picked up. And that one episode is absorbed into the rerun package, from what I understand. So it can be seen uh, on. uh, Oh, by the way, the show is on both Hulu and Prime Video, two different platforms. And let me check. uh, Facts of Life is available on. yeah, let me let me count. Wait one second. Uh, yeah, zero. Yeah. <sighs> um, but beware on Prime Video, the numbering of the episodes is wonky. That's probably what's going to happen. The facts of life will end up on Prime Video, and instead of being happy about it, I'm going to be complaining that they're going to have the episodes out of order. I don't know why Peacock doesn't have 
a vintage section. They're all NBC shows. Why, Why isn't 227, Amen, Empty Nest, fucking Facts of Life, Golden family time. I don't know why. Strokes, yeah. All, all of it should be there. Goddamn right. Um, but yeah, so Jack Hay is brilliant. And the episode we're about to talk about with Kim Fields, it's it is just the episode starts and it is fine. And then when you hear her banging on the door and screaming for Mary, the show just pops to life. When she yeah. comes on screen, you're like, God damn, she really really was worth her weight in gold and as soon as they realized that they started writing to that and god she is just brilliant and and by the way james the tutti frutti that suggested this he actually suggested the charlotte ray one and when we found it we're like this is great but there's no sandra in it i don't want to talk (laughs) about 227 and not talk about jack hey damn it so thank god we have the kim field show that's why we're doing two normally we'd be lazy and just do the one but uh, yeah, um, Helen Martin as Pearl Shea. God bless her. Like you say, she's the Sophia of the group. Very funny. Veteran African-American actress seen in so many shows before. And I recall her appearing on, I think it was a Jay Leno Tonight Show. It might have been a, a substitute when Jay was still subbing for Johnny, because that would have been around this time. Uh, but he said uh, it was a thing where he's like, so uh, Helen, normally you play this character of Pearl on 227. And I guess you're in a new movie now where you play a pot smoking grandma. That was kind of a, a departure, a different role for you. And Helen Martin turned to Jay Leno on national television and said, oh, Jay, I love the reefer. And yes. the audience lost their fucking mind. And it's like, yeah, in, in 1988 or 89, whatever year that was, assuming it was during the run of this, yeah, not quite fashionable to be a person who admits that, oh, I smoke pot and I love it. That's <laughs> uh, more of a 21st century thing. Did I say how old she was? Well, she died in 2090. Yeah, no, I I believe Helen Martin was 76 when the show began, so... Yeah, she had been around the block and back, and uh, I'm very happy for her to have this gig for five years. And 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 she's in the opening credits. Like, she is a set character. She's not one of those side people that you see in the, you know, also starring in this other little role in the end credits, Helen Martin. It's like, no, good for her that she has this to kind of cap off her career. And uh, who else do we need to talk about? Oscar winner, Regina King. What? Academy Award winner? Multiple Emmy Golden Globe Award winner? First African-American woman to be nominated for Best Director for an Oscar for her film One Night in Miami in 2020, Regina King? Yes, please. Talk about Blazing Trails Girl. Good for you. The Oscar she did win was for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, If Beale Street Could Talk. That was in 2019, but she has so many records for first African-American woman to be nominated for this, to win this award, to do this. And and it's just like, who would have thought this, this little teen actress playing 
a little more of a utility role than a character role. Because I never really thought that the daughter, Brenda, registered much. They didn't really write much no. interesting for her. But and, she, in the few scenes she's got with Kim Fields, she's acting circles around her, for ooh. God's sake. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to get talking oh, about yeah. that. But yeah, no, Regina King, uh, still still blazing trails, still working. And she is, I think she's, I think she's my age, Kim Fields. And she, Kim Fields is a year younger than I am. 71, Regina King was Okay, born. so she's, okay, so she's three years younger. Okay, so Kim Fields was born in 69. Then that makes sense, because Kim Fields is in college and Brenda is still in high school here. Okay, that makes sense. All right. So anything else in general you want to talk about with the show, or do you want to start getting into the individual episodes? You ready? Let's do these, let's do these episodes, because my God, how did Kim Fields work in Hollywood? Oh, no, shit. Oh, well, let's get to it. This oh, is uh, the, the first Disney one we're going to... channel acting that we have to suffer through uh... in this episode. And it's a perfect Kim Fields episode. It's both of these episodes have two characters that come in, change completely, and then realize they were wrong mm -hmm. in 20 minutes. It's a beautiful 80s sitcom. Um, mm -hmm. Le lesson learned in 25 minutes so oh, yes mm -hmm. well this is uh we're going to start here with season three episode 17 so kind of smack dab in the middle of the series here the show called the roommate original air date was february 6th of 1988 it was directed by oz scott this is the first of three episodes that he would direct and uh he has 120 credits and a 41 year career would go on to do a lot of TV shows and some popular big screen movies. And uh, you can you can Google him. I don't need to go into that. Oz Scott is a kind of a big time director. It was written by Ilunga Adele and Jay Stanford Parker. Uh, Mr. Adele would write eight episodes of 227, previously wrote for Sanford and Son, in the future would write for A Different World, Rock, Married with Children, and Moesha. And Mr. Parker, sometimes credited simply as Bootsy, had previously written, um, would write seven episodes total of this series, previously worked on Gimme a Break, and in the future would move on to write the movie Booty Call, as well as write for the TV show Married with Children and the Hughleys. Uh, the Hughleys. Is it Hughleys? Yes, white person. I don't. I'm sorry. I, I just you know, it's it's difficult for us. Uh, I just wanted to make note that all three of these names that I have just written off. Whew, just want to make note that all three of the names I have just stated, director and both of the writers, all African American, on a network TV sitcom about an African American family, something that was quite revolutionary in 1985. That's such a mental fuck for me that I just don't get it. I just, mm -hmm. I just don't get it. <clears throat> How is Regina King, who is younger than you, the first African-American woman to, to do the, I just. I, I agree. I agree. How did we just and I know get... that's, I get it. That's my white privilege speaking, but I just, I just can't imagine like uh, for all the love that we give Norman Lear, we all know that like people like um, Esther Roll had trouble 
like explaining to him, could we get some black writers in here? Mm-hmm. So I just, anyway, it just, I nope, just you're right. You're, you are so right. Why any white person would be like, no, come on. <laughs> I just, anyway. Yeah. No, it is, it's shocking to me. The thing that Greg Proops has said multiple times on his podcast is he says, if you ever see an African-American person with gray hair in their lifetime, that person likely could not drink from the same water fountain, could not swim in the same public swimming pool, and could not use the same bathrooms. In their lifetime, there was still segregation. And, you know, thankfully, we grew up in the time, I should say I grew up in the time of the 70s when there was this, you know, the post-wave and the aftershocks of the civil rights movement of the 60s, where at the very least, there was representation it was it was written by white people and a lot of it was misrepresentation but at least you know gen xers we grew up seeing black people on tv doing things and living lives to give us yeah. some sense of uh these people are just people why why is there a difference i it, it just it yeah. blows my mind we still didn't see gays but you yeah. know <laughs> no yes we did we yeah, we just weren't game. allowed to call them gays. <laughs> <laughs> Men wearing ascots. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, it is. It, it's it's pretty cray cray. As again, as as white people talking about how uh, outraged and disturbed we are by racism, we're aware of the irony of that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so this is all one story. Both of these episodes are all one story. There is not an A plot and a B plot. And in my mind, I had thought that had started to really become more ubiquitous by the the late 80s coming into the 90s. But uh, I have to say, to, to these episodes' credits, they both handle one story, and I don't feel like it's padded. No. But also, I think, and I don't know if it's on purpose, um, I can't imagine it was, but... It kind of shows, uh, how do I put this? It kind of shows what a community that building was mm-hmm. because the whole building, the whole building, the whole group is invested in this one thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of strengthens the, the the relationships of the characters when there isn't all this other business going on. It yeah. kind of shows you that, oh, when something happens in this building, we're all invested. So. Yes. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great observation. I totally agree. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, first thing I noticed, well, let me do a little bit of a synopsis here, okay? The story of this is, or do you want a synopsis? Can you synopsize this for me, Matthew? Kim Fields shows up, acts terribly, and then is fine by the end of the episode. Mm-hmm, done. It's that classic sitcom, and this is the whimsy you have to, have to, uh, give way to turn yourself over to it's that thing of i'm i'm going to dress this person differently and just by dressing differently they start behaving like a completely different human being and it's simply that kim fields is a uh she calls the the lester uncle lester i believe it's lester and a war buddy of his yeah, and uh, it's a war buddy, so it's like a brother kind of a thing. Where uh, it's his daughter, and she's in town to start attending college, but she doesn't have a place to stay. She's supposed to temporarily be with them before the dorms open up, and through a series of fortunate events, she ends up in 
Sandra's apartment as Sandra's roommate. And uh, because she is very uh, bashful, very subdued and nervous, innocent, unworldly, Sandra takes her under wing and sort of, quote unquote, educates her. And next thing we know, she is dressing like a floozy. She is wearing cocktail dresses, presumably to class at college with her hair all teased up like it's Saturday night at Studio 54. And suddenly she is even, I mean, to Kim Field's credit, she has kind of three big chunky scenes in that middle scene where she starts and starts to take on a little bit more of a, of a thing like this and talking more like this. And by the time she is moving in on one of Sandra's men, which is the greatest sin of all. That's where it's like, bitch, you are out of here. It's the moment where he comes in to pick up Sandra for their date and she's late. And he's like, well, I'm taking her to see cats. And he says, have you ever seen it? And Kim Field says, oh, I'd love to see it. And I'm sure Sandra would love to also. Wherever she is. And does a perfect, perfect Sandra. And it gets the laugh. But at the same time, you're like, so she's just not, a, she's a completely different person now. Is it the perfect Sandra? Oh, you don't like that? You didn't think it was? I think it was. But yeah, Kim Field's performance. And by the way, this is not uh, season five or six of Facts of Life, Kim Fields. This is season nine. We are in season nine, the final season of the Facts of Life. So this is 18-year-old Kim Fields. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah, it's a... um, it's a performance that doesn't have many layers to it, let's say. Well, she's just doing that Disney Channel acting where it's like, okay, you're shy and timid in this one. So it's a lot of her like looking around and not making eye contact and being uh, it's just, hands okay. folded in front of her. And just, I was like, yeah. okay, Kim. All right. <laughs> and at one point, when they were on the stoop and they're talking about this new kind of scandal in the building, the way this, this girl, uh, the character's name is Donna, the way Donna is acting. Uh, Mary's like, yeah, I got to have a word with her about that. And then she shows up and she goes to her and says, "Um, Madonna, sorry, I meant Donna. Yeah. (laughs) Cause it's 1985. And when you want to call someone a whore, you'd call them Madonna. Remember that? Well, no, you don't. You're too young. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you want to call somebody old now, you call them Madonna. Um, <laughs> wow. I did do a little research because the guy asked her if he says he's going to see cats. Mm-hmm. This was my this was my deep dive, David. <laughs> you did a deep dive on cats. Cats had not yet performed in Washington D.C. <gasps> when this show was going on. It would come there about two months later on the third national tour until it finally made it to Washington, D.C. in 1988. It took three national tours before they went to... D- they didn't so go to the Washington Kennedy Center? Holy shit. Not. That is surprising. There's wow. a website called Cats the Musical Fandom. <laughs> it lists every 
theater that Cats played, every theater that um, the tours went on. And <laughs> it wow. didn't play Washington, D.C. until later the year 80, in 88 after oh. the show aired. So, well, <laughs> a wag of the finger at these writers. Man, maybe they saw it on a brochure and figured it would have run by then or something because it was coming in the season, you know? But wow, that's now that you good. Say that I, I wonder if it was playing in L.A. when, where this oh. obviously was written. Oh, I yeah. I wonder if it was playing in L.A. That's possible. <laughs> yeah, Washington D.C. It played the National Theater April thirteenth, nineteen eighty eight, to June twenty sixth, nineteen eighty eight. Damn, are you looking up Los Angeles? No, I'm sure it already played L.A. I can't imagine it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's the big show in 88. Oh my still. God. It was still people losing mm. their friggin' minds over it. Wow. Um, so we have, uh, the, the thing with her acting the way she is, you know, what she says is it's the first time she's having fun. It's the first time she's feeling so good and so confident. And it's like, okay, but wow, you're, you're, it's like, you can read the room, you can read the uh, world and, and be like, you do see that the way Sandra dresses is a very specific lane of, you know, and, and Sandra doesn't dress like a complete and total slut. I mean, Blanche Devereaux never did either, but it was more of a, an attitude, but still it's just kind of like, okay. And then the big twist and turn is that when Mary confronts her after Sandra kicks her out for stealing her man, as it were. And then when Mary has words with her about it too, saying, girl, you are going too fast. She pushes back and says, "Never mind. I'm going to find a place to stay and uh, thinks she's going to go stay with the insurance guy that she went to cats with. And it's later when she comes back kind of with her hair back down and wearing a coat over her provocative outfit where she says, yeah, I, I wasn't ready for the fast lane. And it's like, why? What happened? And she says, well, I went to stay with that guy, Tony, to the credit of this episode and the writers. First words out of Marla Gibbs' mouth was, what happened? As in, did, did he do, meaning, did he do anything? Was there any foul play? Did he take advantage of you? I love that 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 was the, like, she interrupted her before she could even go on with the story. And she's like, no, 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 nothing happened. But I did plan to sleep on his couch, and I didn't know that he also was going to sleep on the couch, too. So. Which, why would he sleep on the couch? So he could fuck Kim Fields. I know, but, like, I just, that seemed like a weird line to me. Like, I was going to have been like, I went to sleep on his couch. Turns out he doesn't have a couch. So yeah, I don't know. It, it just seemed weird. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, yeah. I just... or, yeah, he said I could stay at his place. I figured I would just stay on his couch. Then I got there and realized he didn't have a couch. There's yeah. the joke. But uh, yeah. <clears throat> and it's kind of like, okay, you're you're a freshman in college. So she's supposed to be about the age she is. She's supposed to be about 18 or so. It's like, girl, you're gonna stay at a guy's house. Did you not think that it, that sex was going to be at least on the table, uh, assumed? I mean, you didn't, you know what I mean? It was just kind of like, 
I told that guy I was going to stay at his apartment and he thought he might get to have sex with me. <laughs> Can you imagine that's what he had in his mind? Because well, I was wearing a... You acted. Yeah, it's but well, that's just it. And it's like because, you know, just because I'm again, I'm wearing a cocktail dress to fucking McDonald's with, you know, a strapless and my tits hanging out. And and she did look great, by the way. They did dress her. She did. Look, I mean, the, the, the fun thing was to see Kim Fields looking like we've never seen Tootie look. That was actually kind of fun because she is. She always has been strikingly beautiful, which made me wonder why we don't get that that hairstyle, that look out of 2D and Facts of Life. And maybe we do later in this in this season, but that her hair looked great. Very 1988. Yeah. So was there anything else on the, the Kim Fields episode that you wanted to discuss or talk about? Um, I don't think so, David. I mean, she gets in over her head and then realizes that she was in over her head. Okay, bye. Oh, mm-hmm. there you are. I'm back. Are. Sorry. Um, yeah. I, I Yeah, it's one of those. It's like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> uh, I wasn't mad at this episode. And uh, mostly I just, I really did love seeing Jack Hay. She is just brilliant on yeah. the show, really. She, knows, she is. She knows what she's doing. She, she knew the assignment, as they say. Okay. So. Uh, let's move on then. Let's talk to the, let's talk about the second episode, Reunion Blues. And uh, that's the one that has the wonderful Charlotte Ray. Nuts and bolts are that this was season five, episode nine. It was originally broadcast on November 25th of 89. So this is uh, a good year and a half after she has left the facts of life, but is still out there. And, uh, do you want to want to give us a, another TV guide synopsis of the episode, Matthew? Oh, okay. Um, Millie comes to visit Dilly after her husband cheats on her, but all is okay at the end of the episode because they made the character so lovely that you want her to take him back. They made him so lovable and charming that you're happy that she goes back with them at the end what yeah really <laughs> are you uh, happy that she goes back to him it's like in mm. to, to coin a phrase wow let me do the little bits of nuts and bolts here so the episode was directed by garen keith we discussed him before you know he directed many of the different strokes episodes and he would go on to direct 87 of the 227s, which means that uh, he directed most of these. Uh, and it was written by Mike Scott and Daryl J. Nickens. They are writing partners because their IMDBs are fairly similar. Uh, they would write four episodes total for the series, and both previously they had worked on Webster. But it's, uh, yeah, wow. We're in season five now. So they've clearly. I presume in preparation for the absence of Jack Hay said, well, we need to add a minimum of three additional characters. And there's also a little girl, I guess, that comes in that I, does Elena, does Rose adopt a little girl as well as get married? And that is why I need to go back. I need to figure out how Tukey Smith showed up. Yeah. She wasn't in this episode, but she was in the credits. 
Yeah. And I, I do remember Tukey. Um, <laughs> but she hasn't worked a whole lot. I looked at no. her IMDb page and, um, but I just, I just need to go back and find out what happened. How did we get to this point? Like what craziness ensued that they felt like they had to bring Paul Winfield onto this show. And I'm just, okay. And they had to make him a pussy hound? Yeah. And yet wearing this, you know, this boatsman jacket and the ascot where I'm initially, my first response was, oh, so he's the gay upstairs neighbor. He's the Uh, owner of the building. He's the landlord. Yeah. Rose has sold the building to him now. So now this is a new thing. And apparently it looks like what they're trying to set him up as is a uh, status symbol seeking uh, cheap person, like a dude that wants to be respected that wants the status but isn't willing to put in any of the work or spend any money on it and a pussy hound this man is gayer than a glory hole (laughs) i agree i agree he is a grand dom for god's sake yeah and i just i was like when they started that little thing where he was gonna date mrs garrett i was like your husband just left you. We have to have sit down and have a talk because this guy is gay. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh. and, and then in addition to him, we have these two new young guys that live upstairs. We've got Travis and Dylan. Travis Fillmore, played by Stoney Jackson, young African-American boy, and... Uh, Dylan McMillan is played by Barry Sobel. Barry, I always understood primarily to be a stand-up comic. And one of his things was being the white kid, but he was kind of one of those raised in the tough side of town. So he always had kind of the the street talk, as you can hear in this. (laughs) When Charlotte Ray says to him, Charlotte Ray is playing Barry Sobel's mother, is like, why didn't you tell me you had a, a roommate? And he says, I wrote to you that I had a homeboy chilling in the crib. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh, bless. Yeah, nowadays probably wouldn't make that character choice. But he did that in his stand-up too. That was part of his thing, was being a sort of, uh, you know, white kid from the projects or something. I, I don't know. But I remember thinking he was fine as a stand-up comic, but... Here in this show, the writing is not very good. And my goodness, is he unattractive. I mean, really, really offensive to my eyes anyway. I realize I'm, I'm not the perfect whatever, but not particularly attractive in face, doesn't have great skin, and they're not lighting him well. And they're like, well, what are we going to do with this hair? Let's, let's put some gel in it and part it in the middle so it's flat against his forehead, like as if Alfalfa Sweetser got that piece in the back to lay down finally. And I, I, oof, I, I really had difficulty and they didn't dress him well either. because they're trying to give him this sort of semi street dress thing. But uh, how interesting that he is so street wise and, and urban when both of his parents are clearly racists. <laughs> 
because what happens? I'll let you explain this this magic that happens in this episode. Well, the Charlotte Ray does some serious physical work in her scene with um, little Stony Jackson, who if he just would cut that hair, he would have been a mm. knockout. Oh, um, oh yeah, he could get it, man. But he's moving the TV and Charlotte Ray comes in and sees a black man with a TV, which automatically means he's a thief. Oh. I mean, yeah. And then, I mean, and then the same thing happens with a dad. So it's like, okay, well, we know he's getting it on both sides. But the dad does it too, right? Am I remembering yeah. correctly? No, yeah, the dad does it too. Yeah, because there's nothing heart. funnier than assuming a black boy in your son's apartment is automatically a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. In Washington, D.C., what? What's yeah. a black person doing in Washington, D.C.? When your son is the only white person in the building. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. When you already had seen and met Mary and the girls downstairs asking where your son's apartment is, Charlotte, it didn't occur to you that he could be maybe related or somehow affiliated with the other women. Anyway, um, yeah. So, but Charlotte Ray is there because she split up with her husband. She's left him because she found out that two years ago he had an affair with a temp. Like, a, it was like, it sounded like it was just a one night fling. And but couldn't you have written it so that that was a misunderstanding? I would he, have loved that. He didn't actually cheat on her that like oh we got we got snowed in or something and i couldn't send her out so she slept on the couch i stayed awake all night wondering how i was going to explain this and i pr nothing happened but no he's like yeah i did it come back to me or I'll, or else and yeah I was or like, else no no yeah that could have been what? a great woman power moment where she told him to take a fucking hike yeah and they could have added Charlotte Ray to the show, for God's sake, to give Pearl yeah. a foil. Yeah. Oh, my God. That would have been great. But with Charlotte Ray, and she is prominently featured in this episode. She carries a lot of this. Yeah. Uh, she is in full Charlotte Ray mode. God bless her. Yeah, it's she's like, not okay. stretching her acting wings in this episode. <laughs> We're getting the batting of the eyes. We're getting the wrinkling of the nose. And uh, and at the end, when she finally says, I will come back to you, but you're on probation. And she, because through the course of this episode, she's found her happiness again and discovered she can get along without him very well. So you better shape up or ship out. And I'm like, uh, pushing those shushes I'm not sure I see the comedic value of that. Well, she's known for her interesting choices. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, and it's not like if it had been a, is she going to say the shit word? Yeah. In the context, it, it wasn't there. So no. just pushing those shushes was just broadness for broadness sake. And, and, oh, and that kiss that they share at the end. So wow. hot. So hot. Wow. I've still got a half chub over that. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh, my God. So, so, oh. 
and and that actor, by the way, who plays her husband, Reed Shelton, I believe he was on the Golden Girls, Matthew, wasn't he? He was. He was. Um, he um, was the manager of the of the museum that Blanche worked at that gave Dorothy a job, and then the job was to plan Blanche's surprise party. Did you not know that? I, I don't remember this, but I, uh, again, uh, the Golden Girls, is it all runs together for me, really. Right. But um, anyhow, I thought it was that they, again, this is a TV trope. This was my assumption. If you said Dorothy starts working at the museum where Blanche is, well, clearly sparks were going to fly. Clearly. Yeah, she right? thinks, yeah, she thinks, well, no, not sparks. She thinks that um, Blanche doesn't like that Dorothy's quote unquote doing a better job and getting the boss's attention over, over oh, Blanche. But it's because she's planning a party. Yeah. Oh, you mean it's a misunderstanding? Yes. Oh, okay. I, I didn't realize they had those on the Golden Girls. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but yeah, but this performance on the part of Reed Shelton, wow. It is just all bluster and shouting and there is nothing redeeming. And I agree with you. I was like, no, you didn't need to go back to this dude. Yeah. They, they didn't write him anything that helped him, nor did his performance really do anything uh, for me. It's like, yeah. Well, it, it was hard to chew the scenery with fucking Paul Winfield <laughs> min mincing around. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What I just Yeah. Uh, what was wrong? What a I, strange. Make him gay. I mean, what was wrong? Exactly. With that? It's not at this point, it's 89 going into 1990. That wasn't that crazy. Or we already just, had Monroe on Too Close for Comfort. Not make him a pussy hound when he was like, I've had four ex-wives. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I'm right. oh, sure you yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> okay. and Charles Nelson Riley. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what else? I'm trying to think if there's any other things we do get in the first episode. We do get a scene out on the stoop. Do we get, I don't know. We get a stoop scene in the second one. Do we? I don't know that we do either. We get, we get a lot the ladies of... playing cards at Mary's dining room table. Yes. Charlotte Ray goes, men, who needs them? And all three of them raised their hand. That was mm -hmm. good. Yeah, it's something. And the one of the running jokes is that she cleans when she's upset. So she's been cleaning the son's apartment to death. And uh, Pearl turns to Mary and says, how do I get her to come live with me? And Mary's like, fuck you. She's living with me first. And oh, and we do get some sitcom lying, Matthew. We get sitcom now, lying in both of the episodes. But in the first one, in the Kim Fields one, to their credit, Mary, uh, it's like, where is our daughter? We want to see her. Mary is like, uh, she's uh, out. Let me let me get you something to drink. Mary does some distraction kind of a thing. And so I thought to myself, well, this is the good way to sitcom lie. This one, though, this second episode, when the husband comes in and is like, who are you to Paul Winfield? That's and where Paul Marla Winfield Gibbs... looks at Marla Gibbs and goes, yes, who am I? <laughs> and then Marla Gibbs says, uh, Millie has been working as his maid and his cook. Yeah, that's the ticket. Ugh. 
but thankfully charlotte quickly does millie does come and say no that's no don't lie for me mary fuck this guy it's a piece of shit but i'm gonna go back to him yeah yeah but charlotte looks great her hair is still her shorter do and she's got a teased up 80s style looking great has her hair up uh dressed in nice smart little you know skirts and blouses and scarves when they, they have put her, her come out in that horrific blue dress <laughs> i called it a dorothy's bornax special jesus h christ that it was, was just all all sequins and ruching and draping and uh you know drop wasting and just yeah trying to you know create something create a silhouette that was that was pleasant on her and or satisfying to her that's what i w- i kept thinking knowing what diana eden said about how she was very particular about her costumes and how she looked i was like i wonder how many dresses it took before she landed on that one <laughs> yeah Oof. and and i don't think this one was that hideous but it had uh, a lot of camouflage about it mm-hmm. and it was a uh, you very know, drag queen dress yeah, it was exactly exactly Very it's time to create an illusion mm. oh my god it's amazing um so uh yeah so this is i mean again it's this is where you have to submit to the whimsy of the 1980s sitcom but clearly this season five episode wow do we miss jack hay good god i was like if sandra could come in and save this Well, and I apologize. I guess after watching these two episodes, I do want to go back and I want to find out how they used Jack A in the last season, um, how they explained her absence, who these two assholes are, how they explained that, just new tenants that moved in or whatever. But it's amazing to me that in five years, the show changed that much. I say that realizing that from season three to season eight, of facts of life it's a completely different show too but yeah i've changed with it to like to drop in now i know how our guests feel when they drop in on season nine and they're like what the fuck is this (laughs) like like heather said mrs garrett looks different yeah (laughs) yeah but but make no mistake we're doing our thing of we're being hypercritical and microscopic in our analysis uh, of of the littler bits of this, but in general, I'm not mad at the show, and and I don't believe it evolved so much over the five years. I feel like it was probably solid those first four. I really do. I think what we saw in season three was pretty consistent, and I think it was just suddenly we got no Jack Hay. It was probably a scramble of fuck. We got to do something, and maybe maybe this this bosom buddies odd couple thing of the two young guys living up there maybe that could be another show that we could spin off or something you know what i mean yeah so i uh, guess but like i remember tukey smith coming in as a jacquet like character and it just didn't work as she just wasn't as good as jacquet but i would i would like to go back and see how what her part was and i don't know i just i'm i'm gonna need to go back and rewatch some 227 yeah, and we can on either Prime Video or Hulu. How lucky are we? And oh, 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 and speaking of drag queens, here's, here's a way to end it on a good note. Oh, God. Uh, 
back to the first episode when Sandra is interviewing roommates before we land on Kim Fields. We get this girl, this girl who is literally like a clone of Sandra, but a little thinner and a little prettier. And Sandra is like, fuck to the no. <laughs> it's in the lease. We can't have two tens living in the same building. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And her name was Muffin. Muffin T. Uh. Matthews. So then the second comedy rule of threes, the third was Kim Fields. The second one that we had was this older, distinguished woman. I, I, I have to admit, it took me by surprise that this woman says, oh, I think it will be lovely here. And here's a check for first month's rent and last month's rent and handing her the money and stuff. And they're like, great, this is going to work out. Terrific. Sandra's like, yeah, okay. Then she goes to pick up her luggage and as she jerks on the luggage, her wig flies off and it's, oh, it's a dude. I was very impressed. I thought that was a good performance. Are you high? (laughs) I was sitting there watching that scene going, we're going to acknowledge that's a guy, right? Like that's, (laughs) that's the joke of this scene and that, but. It just okay. because I wasn't expecting it, I wasn't looking at it that way. I mean, you you certainly see things uh, differently than I with with your. Come your on, career. he looked like Jack Lemon for God's sake, <laughs> a black Jack bad. Lemon. Oh my a, God! But I'll admit, the second viewing, I was like, "Oh, okay, I see it." But the first time, I it just didn't occur to me that they would have put a drag queen in in this show on this sitcom. So I was like, <laughs> I wasn't mad at that. I thought it was funny. And I'm the one that has to remind you of whimsy, David. But <laughs> the improv at the end of that, when the, when they throw him out and the door doesn't shut and you oh, can, yeah. and Sandra just goes, ah, it was, <laughs> I loved, that was so, uh, that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> she like, knew him. That was the other thing is that when he, the wig came off, she was, she, I think uh, the name is Richard Potter. She yeah. was like, Richard Potter, what are you doing? And he's like, will we be sleeping in the same bed? She's like, get the fuck out of here. Um, I had to look back at this actor. I'm like, has he been on? Wouldn't it have been fabulous if he had been on the show before? But he actually wasn't. He, I think he was going to be on a future episode. Oh. But uh, maybe they shot him out of sequence. But I thought what that would have been extra hilariously funny if he was actually someone we had met before, like a stalker or some, some crazy shit like that. Because... Nothing as funny as a stalker. Nothing. Nothing. So what else you got to say uh, before we give it our talkaholic chips rating? That's it. It's 227. I give it five talkaholic chips, David. I'm, I'm right there with you. It was a solid show for four out of five seasons. I might be inclined to maybe deduct a half of a chip for that final season. Um, but I'm not going to deduct it because I haven't seen how we got there. If I start at season one and go all the way through, I'm, I don't know that it deserves to have it deducted just by the mere fact that Jacquet decided, I mean, they offered her a show for God's sake. Was she supposed to say no? No, but I mean, I'm not saying the deduction is for the lack of Jacquet. The deduction is for this is what they thought would be a, a suitable replacement distraction for it. These, these two guys and that old queen uh, I'm going to, uh, no, I'm deducting. I'm doing it. Four and a half talkaholic chips, Matthew. All right. All right. And there You're, it is. You run a hard bargain, David. I do. <laughs> if I had mm. a nickel, Matthew, if I had a nickel. Well, Tutti Fruities, we hope you've enjoyed this. Thanks again. 
Gen James E. I think James goes by Jimmy. For some reason, I feel like he, he goes by Jimmy. So I'll say thank you, Jimmy, for suggesting this. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, this has been fun. We'll be back next month, of course, with We Have No Idea What. Yeah. And until then, always remember, membership has its privileges and you get what you pay for. Mm. And there's no place like home oh. with your family around you. You ain't never alone. Sing it, girl. Oh, what a great theme song. I love that it theme It is. Song. I'm glad you brought that up. God. Because if you know that you're alone, there's mm. no need to roam. Because mm. there's no place like home. And the end with, no, no place like you better believe it. Ain't no, ain't no uh, there's no place like home. And I mean no place, child. Oh, Ow. Marla. Thank you, guys, and we'll talk at you next month. Bye. There's no place like home. I mean no place, child. Oh, so. Uh, no, more about gel coat. When the fourth... Don't you call in the... More importantly, 